Okay, well, let's uh, let's begin and uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are joyous as your people to be made your sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, that the precious promises made through Abraham are ours, and through the eons of time, your word and your promise comes to us has arrived in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him to us, your people. And we thank you and bless you for this most glorious grace that you have given to us at the end of the ages. We ask, Father, that you would give us the grace now to understand your word more deeply, that we may be further enriched by the grace of your Son and the glories that he has brought and so glorify his name in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we were looking last week at Galatians 3, 1 to 14. And as a refresher, I thought I would summarize for you what we did there, because especially because those verses become prominent as we look at verses 15 through 20 which are really a continuation, at least verses 15 to 18, are a continuation of that argument in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And I was trying to argue for you that Paul is giving us especially two promises, uh, basically two texts giving the promise made to Abraham. The promise made to Abraham, which a promise which is to his seed, that he would be heir of the land, ultimately heir of the cosmos. And those promises, then, one thinks they may be fulfilled here in the Jewish theocracy. However, as we saw, there were two texts that basically removed that thought from us, and that is there is no way their final fulfillment could have come there because... Cursed is are all those under the law. And uh, I was suggesting to you, and we'll further elaborate on this, that in some respect, all of Israel living under the law is under that curse. That is, at least with respect to their inheritance in the land. So that they do not possess the fullness of of their blessed inheritance by comparison to us who will receive it in greater abundance. And so uh, we look beyond the land. We see that other text which tells us that the man who does these things shall live by them. So that the covenant of grace given to Moses also promises Israel life in the land to the degree that she is obedient. And yet, we see that that is a failure. Israel is cast out of the land in exile, and she comes into great curse of exile. And yet, the Lord promises a day. A promises a day by the prophets in which God will reverse this curse and bring that eschatological inheritance promised to Abraham. And we see an aspect of this uh, foretold for us in the, uh, in the prophet Habakkuk that Paul quotes, that the just shall live by faith. 
that the just shall have everlasting life by faith, shall receive the justification which brings a life and an inheritance in which there is no curse. That curse is removed. Now, therefore, that eternal, that inheritance is eternal in the heavens. So that that is the eschatological inheritance. No more exile for the people of God. We might put it another way. Christ, who we saw then, is the one who bore this curse of the law, who comes under, truly under the curse, born under the law, as Paul will later say, bears this curse and therefore brings this eternal inheritance in the heavenly places. Put it another way. There is nothing that is your inheritance in God now that is under the curse. Nothing that is your inheritance of God. So even though the land was to some degree the inheritance of the people of God, even though it did simply look forward to the inheritance to come, Yet, nonetheless, God manifested his blessing there in that provisional inheritance. You might say the people of God were at least visually, visually under a curse, under a type of the curse in that inheritance. And therefore, they could be cast out from the land and the prophet could call for a reversal of that. But now... The death and resurrection of Christ means you are not cursed in relationship to anything that is your inheritance of God. And therefore, you have a greater faith and a greater hope and a greater joy. And this greater faith, the Habakkuk looks to, I believe, when he looks to a day in which one will not even live by sight, even to the degree that one did in the land where the blessings of the land brought prosperity, but he predicts a day when, even though the fig tree should not blossom, and so forth, yet I will trust in the Lord. Even when the visible blessings of the land are not there, I will trust in the Lord because he will have brought his great day of vindication, his great day of final eschatological justification for his people. Now, now, provisionally realized in Christ. Um, so, uh, and, and I'll get your question in a minute, David. So, so in effect, we have two aspects, too, in this text, which you will see. Sonship and justification going together. Where Paul makes the quotation of Abraham justified by faith, therefore, it is those who are faith are sons of Abraham. And we saw that that sonship in the New Covenant did, relatively speaking, go beyond the sonship of the Old Covenant saints. That is, our sonship is now enriched. Okay. It is not that they were not sons. Those who by faith, lived by faith, were sons of God through that gracious covenant that God gave them on Mount Sinai. But that Faith, that sonship is now enriched for us, the people of God, in possessing this everlasting, curseless inheritance above in Christ. And therefore, the justification that goes along with it is enriched 
This is my claim. It is enriched so that now in the New Testament, when the just now live by faith, they their justification is enriched. So in the New Covenant era, it also entails the fact that they are no longer under the curses of the law, even visibly, as the Old Covenant saints were. So that when Paul uses the term justification, he uses it even in a more pronounced way. Yes, Ben. And uh, what, what did these uh, two concentric circles uh, mm-hmm. relate to? Yeah, and I'll remind you, what, what I have done is, is, is I'm suggesting that, uh, that Paul thinks somewhat in the categories that Augustine thought in, where there's the visible and invisible church, okay? In fact, you can think of that in Romans 9. He thinks of that in terms of Old Testament Israel. Not all who are of Israel are of Israel, right? And my question, I thought that's what you meant by Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, that's that's a good point, and and, and I and I I do this simply to to represent the uh, the the aspect of the the greater fullness, and I'm just putting it with a semi-eschatological diagram. But we could, you know, we can see it here as indeed we are raised with Christ in the heavenlies. That's our identity. And we can put it. Uh, yes. Um, Though, I mean, this is a good point. When I say, when I'm, when I'm suggesting the visible and the invisible aspect of the church, you, you actually, you are correct. Maybe I should modify in some ways where I put these circles. Um, but what I have in mind uh, is that, if you will, the elect, you can almost look at these as three dimensions. Two-dimensional thing, okay? For the reprobate, okay? For the reprobate, the reprobate, uh, and let's say if we want to do that, let's go ahead and put this circle down here. For the reprobate, we have another circle in the background, okay? Where his circle looks more like his two circles, as I would suggest, look more like this where we have, he seems to have a visible manifestation of grace in the new covenant. In other words, he doesn't even, insofar as he participates in the blessings of the saints, he seems to have uh, a curseless inheritance. He is not in the land. If he is excommunicated, he is not executed, right? Okay. But this is completely dark. He is not a member of the invisible church. His true state is one of complete sin and curse and damnation. So we could have this circle kind of behind this one here, all right, for the saint. Um, and in that respect, I can see where you, would, you, would, you might want to put them down here where you've got both the ideas of visibility related because of the visible church. Um, and maybe what you want to do is think of this, the heavenly sphere, as, uh, as being... The true sphere of the eternals, where there is no distinction between visible and invisible church. So you're pressing me on this, Ben. Very good. Where there's no distinction between visible and invisible church, and you have the visible church being truly caught up, the invisible church, excuse me, being truly caught up in the heavenly places, right? And because they are caught up in the heavenly places, 
then that is manifest, that life is manifest in the community, right? And so uh, it, even in the visible church, it seems like the heavenly life is here manifest, but the only true, ultimate, real connection is between the saints and the heavenly places. Those in Hebrews 6 who partake of the powers of the age to come only do it by participation visibly in what the saints truly possess in above. So I, I like your way of trying to press me on that. A- any more you want to? Okay. As I understand uh, your presentation, the uh, theocracy of Israel, uh, the blessings that they had were tied to the land, and concomitant with that was this potential curse if they violated uh, the commands as uh, laid out in the Old Testament. And that consequently, um, after Christ's first advent, um, our uh, hope and those for New Testament believers of any nationality is in Christ, in the heavenlies. It does not have any of this potential cursing that uh, was attended with the theocracy of Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to assure you that um, when the problem I have with that is the fact that I have a dispensational view of God's administration through history, and it's not a product of my uh, consuming a controlled substance. In fact, one of the things that, that propels me in this direction is Jeremiah 31, 35, and 36. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. Now, uh, I'm not, I'm inquiring. I'm not throwing this out as a proof test, but if you can understand that it seems to me that passages like that are prophetic and they can be interpreted as speaking to a a millennial kingdom where Israel is preeminent. So I'm inquiring, what what is the amillennialist interpretation on those types of verses? Generally, that's... one has to interpret those Old Testament prophecies the same way the New Testament writers do. So, uh, and, and I know that's that's throwing out a lot at once and making a big assumption on my part, but I think if you go through all the places in the New Testament where the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament or allude to it and interpret it, uh, you find that what they do is they interpret it as having already been fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled fully. Most of the time, Focusing on the already of the fulfillment. Okay. 
And when you see the already of the fulfillment, you know that Jesus or Paul is not talking about national Israel having become a nation and, and being in her land, because that is not a part of what they're talking about. Uh, and they don't even see Israel as having returned as a nation. So uh, then if that's not how they're interpreting those prophecies, how are they interpreting them? Well, a couple things can be said here, um, the second of which is to look at Romans 9, but, but first, um, 9 through 11, but first is to, is to see that Paul, in effect, is, is saying that those promises are fulfilled in Christ. Okay. They're fulfilled in Christ, and therefore to all who are in him. Uh, he's going to go about making that argument here in Galatians 3, that the promises you see made to Abraham, which then the prophets then project into the eschatological future, those are made to Christ ultimately, and then all who are in him, ultimately Jew and Gentile alike. But it does seem to me, at least, that Paul in Romans 9 to 11 argues that as a result of those promises that there will continue to be an elect remnant chosen from the descendants of Abraham, from Israel, throughout this time until the Lord returns. So Paul asks the question at the beginning of Romans 9, is it as though the promises have failed? I mean, excuse me, this is the beginning of Romans 11. It is, is it though the promises have failed? And he's continuing a line of argument that goes from Romans 9, which seems to be the question, has God kept his promises? Are his promises, have they failed? And he starts by saying he himself is an Israelite. No, he's an Israelite now. All right. And then he describes the elect remnant of Jews constantly being saved as a large body of of Gentiles are simultaneously being saved. And then he comes to the end of that section, Romans uh, 11, then you've got verse 24 and 25, and he says, in effect, that here's the mystery, that a hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and thus, or in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, in this way, the promises will be fulfilled. And there I do not see that he's talking about something new, where all Israel will be suddenly saved, but that he's explaining how those promises are to have been fulfilled. That is, with a remnant of Jews unto the end, with the fullness of the Gentiles, the remnant of the Gentiles coming in to salvation. So even if, even if he's referring to ethnic Israel in some respect, all Israel being saved, he's referring to the elect ethnic Israel. And he may be referring to all Israel being Jew and Gentile alike in that respect as well. But at any rate, that's the way in which those prophecies, I believe, are fulfilled in the New Testament. That's, that's what I would claim. Anybody want to add to that or bring the nuance to that, Jim, something from the Gospels or anything that, that would be repeat or anyone else? Okay. Well, 
And I, I think as we go through this text, think about the way Paul has set up the promises, okay? He set up promises made to Abraham, you see, and he said that those promises aren't fulfilled in their fullness by means of the law, okay? And therefore, he's implying that the prophecy given Habakkuk 2 that's going to be fulfilled is a fulfillment of those prophecies, you see? And that's how he's going to lay it out here. He's going to continually lay it out, that those promises made to Abraham are now fulfilled in Christ and for all those who are in Christ, All right. Well, at any rate, um, if we look, you know, if we look at these texts, and and, and I will, uh, we're going to go back to this a little bit because we're we're going to finish off with the verses that conclude this discussion, okay? Which is verses fifteen to eighteen. And if you look at this whole section, though, uh, at least the section verses. Uh, 15 through 20, you'll find a few prominent themes of which we've already mentioned. We've just been talking about the promises, you see, made to the seed of the inheritance, okay? You see, the inheritance, if it's by law, it's no longer by promise. It's, it's, it's this promises here made to the seed, which is Christ, and that brings the full inheritance. That's what I'm going to argue. That's Paul's argument here. He's continuing on what he said before, you see. The promises made ultimately are made to Christ. The promises made to Abraham are ultimately made to Christ. That promise of an inheritance is made to Christ. That inheritance is now ours in Christ. And we are heirs of that. So he's got this word promise, in fact, repeated quite a few times in this section. Verse 16, 17, 18, it occurs twice, 19, 21, and 22, if we go a little farther. Promise, 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 promise. See, he's carrying over that theme of the promises he gave us to Abraham. And then he does allude to uh, this promise at, well, he actually speaks of it, in chapter 3, verse 29. So you can see that he's still continuing this discussion. He wraps it up in 3.29. He says, If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Okay? This is obviously on his mind, right? Now, what does he say there, though? He says, heirs according to promise. So he's bringing together another theme. Okay, another theme, which, though admittedly, the word only appears once in our section, but it is inheritance, 3.18. If the inheritance is of law, it is no longer of promise. So that theme of the inheritance, we are heirs. And then, of course, the other word that's repeated frequently enough is seed. Verse 16, it occurs three times, and then again in verse 19. And you'll see there's actually a discussion in 3.16 about the seed being not many, but one. And so then we have a repetition of the term one a couple more times in verse 20. It occurs twice. 
So throughout this section, he's speaking about the promises made to the seed to the one seed, Jesus Christ. So as you look at the beginning, notice he says, verse 15, Brethren, I speak of the human relations, even man's covenant, yet it has been ratified. No one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Okay. So he begins now with a note of brethren, right? Remember we were talking about how he may be endearing himself and bringing himself closer to them, saying brethren. And then he speaks in terms of a man's covenant. And what we're going to find here is that he is talking about the covenant made with Abraham. Okay? And he's going to say, the law doesn't set it aside. You see, that's what he was arguing before. He's quoting the law, right? He's saying that that doesn't bring the, the eschatological fulfillment. Therefore, the covenant made with Abraham is not set aside by the law. And you can see what I did here. With, it seems like you have a pattern under this section, Christ is the one seed to whom the promises are made. It seems like Paul is focusing on that. He talks about ratifying the covenant, the seed. And then he says... It's not of many seeds, but one. So there seems to be a contrast in the middle. And then he speaks of the seed again, the covenant, and ratifying. And this may focus on that contrast between the not many seeds, but the one. The not many seeds, but the one. And here, I believe that he is... Because he's making this contrast, not the law, the law doesn't invalidate the promises... What's the contrast between the not many seed and the one seed? He's not, this covenant ultimately made to Abraham is not with many seeds, but with one. Who might be the many seeds that he's saying it's not ultimately made with? Yes, I think both are interesting ideas, but I think it's the natural offspring. Because here he's making a contrast between, you see, the not not many, but one. And it seems to fit then with his saying, because the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise. So here I think he's saying, it's, it's the promise ultimately made to Christ. It's, and that's how this eschatological fullness comes. It's, not by means of Israel's obedience to the law. As God covenant with that people and definitely covenanted with them in the covenant of grace, and yet with that covenant of grace gave them these promises of inheritance in the land and blessedness as opposed to curse. And he's saying that the blessedness of the kingdom is not going to come by means of that promise to many, you see, but... To one. The promise is not with many, ultimately. It is with one. It's with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and in my summary, I was going to go back and t- t- we'll discuss the centrality of the cross of Christ, but we'll come back to that. So it's not with many, but it is with the one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And... See, what he has here is he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham, verse 16, and to his seed, he does not seed and to seed, is referring to many, but rather to one, and your seed, that is Christ. 
And then he goes on to, uh, to describe this and says, what I am saying is this. So this interprets what we just read. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Okay. So verse 16, verse 17 is interpreting verse 16. You see, it's not with many, not many, but one. And what I am saying is the law, you see, which came 430 years later, which was made with the many, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified with God with the one. Because if it did, it would nullify the promise. Right. And the promise did not come through the many and their obedience to the law. And then you see verse 18 says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise. You see, he's still continuing to interpret that, not the many, all right? For if it came through the many, if it came through Israel and her obedience to the law, then the ultimate eschatological inheritance would have come by the law. See, if Israel was able, which she wasn't, to obey God perfectly, and able in that way to fulfill the promises, which she wasn't, because she was sinful and judgment under judgment. But if the law could have brought life, which it couldn't, then indeed righteousness would have come by the law. Then indeed the inheritance would have come by the law. If it were possible for Israel to obey the law perfectly and so by bring in the eschatological inheritance, bring in the fullness of the inheritance, if that were possible... Would that not undermine the promise? If Israel could have been perfectly obedient and thereby brought in eternal life and the age of the Spirit, then would not that have invalidated the promise made to the one seed? What use is there for the one seed, right? But you see, that can't happen because that's not ultimately the purpose of the law. The law was not able to bring life, okay? And so the law does not invalidate this promise previously given by God. If the inheritance were based on law, you see, then it would not be based on promise. It would undermine the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by means of a promise. So God gave it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, obviously, I'm suggesting to you some importance to this theme of inheritance, right? Uh, and that it's related to everything we've seen beforehand. And I think we saw that in 329, where you see it is the promise, we're heirs of the promise in Jesus Christ, right? Heirs of the promise, inheritors. But it's interesting, you also have a few structural things that may uh, show some Highlight on both inheritance and seed. I think the seed is clearly highlighted. But if you look at your section four here, 
you have the promise, 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 promise. And in between each time, you've got something else. Now, these aren't repeated words, but I find it interesting that these, these are elements that fit with the promise. So in between the first two promises, you have an inheritance. Between the second and third, you've got Abraham. Between the third and fourth, you have the seed. Is he intending to highlight those elements of the promise? Another way of looking at this, uh, because law is a repeated term in those verses, is you can see that the, we have the idea of the law, the inheritance, the promise, kind of like a little stair step there, law, inheritance, and promise. And in 19, we have law and promise, but what comes in between is seed. Okay. And of course, in between both of those is God gave it to Abraham by means of a promise. And here the it, God gave it to Abraham by means of a promise, goes back to inheritance, however you read it. So God gave it, the inheritance, to Abraham by means of promise. Therefore, the inheritance, the eternal inheritance, cannot come by law. It must come by promise in Jesus Christ. Any comments or questions or probing? Ultimately, you can see, I think what Paul is doing is he is, he is repeating and expanding upon what he had said before in verses 1 to 14. And he's bringing them to a culmination here. Okay. And he wants, therefore, us to focus on the one seed who is Jesus Christ, to whom the promises are ultimately made. And that is interesting when you look at verses 13 and 14 again. Because you see that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, so that you have Christ becoming a curse so that the blessing, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham. What does that tell you about Jesus Christ? If it's in him that we have the blessing of Abraham, does not Jesus Christ become? the blessing of Abraham? In Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes. You see, he becomes a curse. He becomes a curse, bearing the curse of the law, so that there is that reversal where he becomes the blessing. The blessing to Abraham. That means the promise given to Abraham is to him. The promise of blessing is to him. He inherits it. He is the blessed possessor. He is the blessing. He is your blessing, you see, in Christ Jesus. It is not by means of the law. In fact, realize 
you have to see your life in the history of redemption here. You have failed as well at all obedience to the law. You have nothing. You, apart from Christ, are cursed and cut off. You are an ultimate judgment and despair apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You are deserving of eternal wrath and curse, being cut off from the blessed possession of God himself. Deserving for eternity to be cut off from that blessed possession, to receive the curse of eternal judgment and the wrath and fury of God, and not his own blessedness, which is his own eternal life. And instead, you see the Lord Jesus Christ as God and man bore that eternal judgment for you on the cross. He bore the equivalent of eternal damnation where he was cut off from the blessedness of God himself. But the promise of God was sure. The promise of God was fulfilled in his resurrection. And he became the blessedness of God, the eternal blessedness of the eternal one. And therefore, he invited you, you into him, to possess eternity and become blessed in him. And now at this time in the history of redemption, to possess the fullness of blessedness. See, we are coming toward eternity. We are moving toward the eternal throne room of God. In fact, we have been made possessors of it even now. So that we have passed out of death into life. And so Paul includes the Gentiles in this. Because now the curse has been born in relationship to the inheritance of God, the eternal curse has been born in relationship to the inheritance of God. And as Luther pointed out in his commentary on Galatians, that must mean that Christ is what? Christ, is he purely a mere human being? How could a mere human being bear eternal judgment and satisfy it? Wouldn't he be in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever if he bore your judgment? And would he ever get out of hell? If he could even bear it? No, if he were a mere creature, he would not. So he had to be eternal God to bear eternal wrath in a moment of time on the cross. And so it is the eternal condemnation of the eternal Son of God in the flesh that brings the eternal blessed possession. The eschatological age requires the death of an eschatological being to bear the curse. Not that he died in terms of his divinity, but in terms of his humanity, he died, and that judgment was born eternally by him because he was eternal God. So, you see, when Paul is talking about us receiving the promises, this is not some abstract promise. This is a promise in Christ, in your Lord. And through Christ, the promises are to you. 
Now think about that. They're not by your works, but by faith, first and foremost. First, by trusting in the promises of God. Is that how you think of your continual, your first justification, but also your only justification, I should say, but your continual life as a Christian? That it is faith in the promises of God? Do you see that the promises given to Abraham are summoning you through Christ? Even when you come into the worship service of God, God does not begin by having you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps so that you might worship him. You are to come into the worship service knowing that God, first and foremost, is calling you to himself. We have a call to worship, don't we? He is calling you to himself in grace, saying, you, my beloved people, my blessed people, I have made these eternal promises to you in Christ, and they have been made sure and eternal in Christ Jesus. And I am inviting you to come and worship me. Trust in my grace and rejoice in it and rejoice in my son now. And so he beckons you every time you are beckoned to pray before the throne of God. It is not that you are to sit there saying, oh, how how can I pray? How can I pray? Though we may struggle with it. Remember, the Lord is beckoning you by his grace. He invites you in his love. You see, he is saying, my child, I want you in my presence. And I have given you great promises of love and mercy in my son. He's been raised from the dead. Rejoice in him and come to me. You see? And he calls us to that in every act of temptation. In every call to obedience, he calls us first to trust in these great and everlasting promises made to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to respond to him in union with his son in joy and gratitude. Well, there's an interesting thing here that Paul may be playing off of, too. He talks about the covenant in the section 5 that I've given you. And he talks about it being ratified. Ratify the covenant, and no one sets it aside or adds a codicil to it, meaning some addendum to it, to a will. And then he speaks of the promise. And then when he speaks of the law, he says that the law does not make void or destroy, or we might translate it or nullify the promise. So the law does not nullify the promise. The law understood properly does not nullify the promise. And I'm going to suggest to you that he may be thinking, you see, of, in fact, the Judaizers and the way they set up the law as an end in itself, that would be a way of nullifying the promise. You see, 
The Judaizers think of the law as being in and in itself, as being the way of bringing in the eternal age. They think that by means of obedience to the law, they can bring out blessings in their life as opposed to curse. And therefore, they think they can bring in the everlasting age of blessedness by obedience to the law. Paul is implying that that is not what the law was about. Because if that's what the law was, it would nullify the promise, right? There would be no need for the Son if the law was able to do that. Could the law do that? Could Israel obey the law perfectly and bring in the eternal era of peace and glory? No, she could not. But the Judaizers are implying that she can. And if you want to be a part of this Gentile, you better get on the program and be circumcised and become part of the Jewish race so you can participate in that program too. But such a view of the law would nullify the promise and make Christ of none effect, right? Well, has he not implied in the narrative that that is what Peter is doing? That Peter, by engaging in that table fellowship only with the Jews and excluding the Gentiles, he is trying to go back to the law and he is making the age of the law an end in itself? And Paul says at the end of that discussion in 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. I do not set aside the grace of God. Interesting that it is the same word in our text here. It is the same word when Paul speaks of, in verse 15, I speak in human terms, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. You see, is he in some way still connecting us back to the narrative, perhaps? See, if righteousness came by the law, if righteousness comes by obedience to the law, if the righteous age of everlasting justification and righteousness, if the age of the kingdom comes by the law, Christ died needlessly. Right? And here he says, you see, if the law was of such a nature... that would nullify the promise. Okay. And he's saying, no. No one really, when they establish a promise, no one sets it aside or nullifies it. I suggest to you this possibility here because you've got, you also, you have in this section, Paul actually then using several kinds of words which are synonyms uh, for this Set a, setting aside or nullifying, okay? Uh, 
You see in verse 17, he has similar words. Uh, the, the law which comes 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And <clears throat> this term nullify in verse 17 or so as to destroy the promise is something he attributes in a sense to the Judaizers later in Galatians 5.4. Or those who would Judaize. Somebody want to read for us Galatians 5, 2 to 4? Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Okay. See, there Paul is suggesting, you see, that those who are circumcised themselves, if you circumcise yourself now that Christ has already come, Christ will not be a benefit to you. Every man who receives circumcision is under obligation to keep the whole law, and you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And... Paul actually uses this term here in this context. And so we have these people, you see, they have, in effect, undermined the grace of God. Look at verse 11. Um, Brethren, I brethren, but I brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Um, Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished or has been destroyed. You see, if I preach circumcision, it's here, that if I preach it, the stumbling block of the cross has been destroyed. I have undermined it. I have destroyed it. And here in this text, you see, in our text, he's saying no. That that cannot happen. You cannot destroy the covenant that comes in its true nature, cannot destroy the promise. And if you make it into something else, if you make this Jewish theocracy and the law into something it wasn't intended to be, a means of bringing in the eschatological era, if you make it that, by circumcising yourself now after Christ has come, you have, in effect, abolished Christ or the need for Christ. But that can't be because God's promise is sure and instead you will be cut off you will be cut off. Now, I think there's these connections here, um, but I'm going to give you uh, some that might be a little farther off, and that is simply because we do have these synonyms here in verses 15 to 17, synonyms that relate to nullifying 
it may have some reflection on some of Paul's previous uses of synonyms to this fact. We saw in 2.21, if I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That term needlessly there is not uh, used in the other text I'm going to show you here, but it is somewhat of a synonym for died, like died in vain. Okay, And then you have the, vain, the, vain, the words of vain, vanity, which we've, we looked at last time briefly um, in verse 4 of chapter 3. Did you suffer so many things in vain if it was in vain? All right, so it, it may be that, in fact, he's then saying, hey, if you, continue, if you go on to the law, the works of the law, you will suffer in vain, and perhaps this is the same vanity that he's been talking about before. And interestingly enough, in chapter 2, he had said something about his own ministry, that he worked in order um, that his race would not be in vain. So that's in verse 2 of chapter 2, because of a revelation I went up and submitted to them the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did it in private, so as to those who have reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. That is, if Judaizers, you see, progress in giving their message, then my ministry would have been in vain. Is this the same kind of vanity that he's talking about, you see? That if you return to circumcision, all of this will be in vain? It will be like saying that Christ died needlessly? Is he saying that you are going against the history of redemption? And I think he is in some of these texts. I think in some of these texts, he's implying you're going against the history of redemption. You're trying to make that covenant promise of God to Abraham of none effect. You're trying to destroy that covenant promise to Abraham if you exalt the law and return to circumcision. You see, you are not going forward in the history of redemption. You are going backward. It's almost like saying the law was set up to go backward in redemptive history, isn't it? Is it as if it destroyed the promise? No. The promise is made first, and the law must be seen in light of the promise. The law cannot be in complete antithesis to the promise. And if you try to make the law in and in itself, you are making it a complete antithesis to the promise, and you are undermining the promise. You are going backward in the history of redemption. And so if now, after Christ has been dead, buried, and raised from the dead, and borne the curse of the law, and if you try to even go back to the law in its previous aspect of the history of redemption, you're nullifying the promise, because the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Already now, it's embodied in him. If you seek to go back to the law now, you are seeking to go back to it as an end in itself, something it was never meant to be, and you are going backward in the history of redemption. You are seeking to nullify the grace of Christ. You are seeking to nullify the promise, in effect. You see, for Paul... There is no hope, there is no glory apart from Jesus Christ. It is all in him and his death and resurrection. Your life 
and all of redemptive history is completely undone if it is not for the Lord Jesus Christ and his cursed death and his blessed resurrection on your behalf. Well, we'll take a question and we'll take a break. Yeah. I just want to say that's about the finest explanation of Galatians 3 I've ever heard. Thanks. Yes, Stephen. I'm curious about how Paul uses the word uh, faith and believing and faithful in this chapter. Uh, I'm wondering how it is that, why it is that he says uh, in verse 23, before faith came, we were kept custody under the law. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, so faith is something that comes after Christ, uh, and yet Abraham is one who believes, Abraham has faith, and so forth. What's, uh, is this faith that comes to the Gentiles after Christ, or is there something different in the character of the faith? I'll give you a brief answer, but I'm going to let you hold off until we go through this passage. Um, Briefly, yes, the faith of Abraham anticipates the faith of the fullness of the faith of the new age. And I'll hold off on the relationship between that faith and Abraham's faith, but you can see that there is a progress in the history of redemption in terms of the bondage under the law, relatively speaking, and the greater faith that comes in the New Age with the coming of faith. And that language of the coming of faith actually reflects our own passage, which is uh, uh, verse 19, which he talks about the coming of the seed. you got the coming of the seed and the coming of faith. And so they are redemptive historical. And here I would think, I believe that it's actually a greater degree of faith, okay, matter of degrees, Braided on the greater promise, now the promise being fulfilled in Christ, and the greater manifestation of that promise in Christ Jesus. But there's a lot more to unpack there, I know that. You, you go ahead. With respect to verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. Here is he speaking of faith. Then, in terms of this later faith, that's what I believe is is one aspect of what he's focusing on there. Yes. Okay. We'll talk about some other aspect of that next hour. I hope. Okay. Now, I want to look uh, at Galatians uh, 3.19 and then 3.20. Notice uh, what he says in 3.19. Why the law then? So we have a question that's he going to answer. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, 
Here's a question. How is it answered? It's added on account of transgressions. And what does he mean by this? Does he simply mean that it was added so that people might become aware of transgressions? Which is one possibility. Uh, Or some have thought it is added uh, to deal with transgressions. But others have thought, as Ritterboss thinks, it's added to increase transgression indirectly. Okay. Uh, And I tend to go in this direction with a comparison to Romans 5.20. That is, that the law was given that the transgression might increase. So take a look at Romans 5.20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, here, if Paul is talking about this, let's say what he is not saying again. If Paul is saying that the law has come that the transgression might increase, he is not saying that the law causes transgression directly, is he? No, he is saying what Paul then says in Romans 7, verses 7 to 11. It was sin taking opportunity afforded by the commandment that worked in me every covetous desire. Because apart from the law, sin was dead. Okay, But now it's alive because of the commandment. That is, the law comes to sinners, and then sinners, they know they're sinners already from natural revelation. But then the law brings it even more clearly to them. And they see even more clearly and forcefully the commandment, thou shalt not, thou shalt not covet, as Paul says. And that works in them every covetous desire. Well... Is this possibly what Paul has in mind here? Well, there have been those, like I said, who believe that's the case. And they've shown verse 22. The scriptures has shut up all men under sin in order that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so this this aspect of the shutting up under sin is an aspect of shutting up unto bondage to sin, relatively speaking. Okay. Uh, At least in terms of those under the law who were in the land of Israel who believed, there may even be this sense because at least in my view, I think Romans 7 is talking about such a believer and experiencing this aspect of a law in their life, waiting for the fuller revelation of uh, liberation in Christ Jesus. Well, at any rate, um, 
there is, as I mentioned, also this aspect of the redemptive historical element. Ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come and to whom the promise was made. Until the seed should come. So the law given for this purpose, until the seed should come to whom the promise has been made. And whatever it is, what is this one to whom the promise has been made going to do? What is he going to do in reference to sin? He's going to... Yes, very good. He's going to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And, of course, the wages of sin is death and curse. And so the law... If he's saying here that it multiplies transgressions, it does so that grace may abound all the more. He's saying. Well, what is this aspect of, and we're dealing with a few exegetical issues here. Um, It was given by a mediator ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come, and to whom the the promise had been made. Well, this mediator thing is going to have some relevance. Given by a mediator? The law, obviously, given by a mediator until the seed should come. And verse 20 says, but a mediator is just of one, but God is one. That sounds a little cryptic. What is he saying there? And how does this relate to this whole discussion about the seed? Hasn't been the focus of this thing, been the promises have been made to the seed? Well, the law is given through a mediator, and I'm going to suggest to you here that uh, and there have been people in the history of the church who have thought that this was reference to Christ, and, and ultimately I think it is, but the mediator here is most directly perhaps Moses. Okay, And the Old Testament does look upon Moses as being a mediator uh, in several places, which I thought I had in my notes, but it was Leviticus 28, no, 2637, I believe. Um, Deuteronomy 5, 5 for sure. Okay, um, both... Uh, So somebody have Leviticus 26.37 and see if I got that right out of memory. suggestion that in some respects Moses as a mediator was standing between God and people. Right? Now, 
Uh, it is interesting you have a mediator here, so I'll just say briefly that the fact that there's mediation here, does that not imply that the law is ultimately grounded in the grace of God? Yeah. Okay? If the law was strictly a law of strict legal obedience, if this was simply a strict legal covenant in the absolute sense, there wouldn't be mediation, would there? Mediation implies grace. And so ultimately, we may see Christ behind Moses, if he's talked about as a mediator here. But with that in mind, if here we have Moses as a mediator, what do we do with this language of in Galatians 3, verse 20? Now a mediator is not for one only, whereas God is one. What is all that about? And how does that relate to the seed? What did we say? What does Paul say about the seed earlier? It's not given, the promise is not given to many, but to one. That's the only other place in this text, immediately, where we have one. You see, a promise is not to many, but to one. Excuse me, a mediator is not of many, but of one. Or did I say that wrong? Uh, sorry. Now, a mediator is not for one only, whereas God is one. So a mediator is not for one only, but God is one. So what's going on here? Well, my suggestion to you is that what Paul is implying is that the seed is the one seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise is made from God through Abraham to the one seed, Jesus Christ, right? Promise is made from God to the one seed, Jesus Christ. Is there a need for a mediator here? No. Why not? God is one. Christ is God. Look at how we have even the language, the way that Paul sets it up in the text here. Look what I've got, seven Galatians 3.20, Christ is the one seed and one God. You've got seed, seeds, the one. Seed, Christ. Seed, one God. One Actually, that goes on into the next page here. Well, maybe it doesn't in yours, but we've got, maybe you've got it right. The seed, one God, one. So we've got one Christ, one God, one. One Christ, one God, one. Ultimately, people have tried to argue against this position. I don't see a really good way out of it. Because the text, when it's talking about one, is talking about one seed, Jesus Christ. Right? And that's the whole discussion. The promise is unto the one seed, right? And then a mediator is not of one seed. Well, why not? Why couldn't you have a mediator between God and one seed? Well, the answer is because God is one. Christ is God. And so another affirmation of why this promise is to... is an 
what do we call it? Eschatological fulfillment. A fulfillment where we have an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting righteousness, right? Remember, we needed Christ. Christ had to be God to bear eternal judgment on the cross, right? To bring eternal life and the everlasting kingdom. So also, he needs, he is therefore God, the one to whom the seed, the, the seed to whom the promise is made. He is the final receptor of the promises of God. And you are the final receivers in him. Question? Yes. So you're saying that in verse 20, it points out that there is no mediator in this case. Correct. Okay. Then back to 19, it, it does say that there is a mediator there. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Right. Then who are the two parties there? There, the two parties are God and Israel. Uh, remember the contrast earlier between the promise is not made to many but to one. And I suggested to you the many then would be the people of Israel. Okay, here again, this, this mediator is between God and the many people of Israel. Uh, so back to verse 20. Uh, yeah. I mean, apart from verse 20, we know that Christ is the mediator between God and man. Correct. But verse 20 is not referring to that fact. That's right. It's referring that there is no mediator between Christ and God. Correct. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yes, Stephen. Is there a mediator between God and Abraham? Between God and Abraham. Um, well, I'm going to leave that open because I haven't thought enough about that, only because I know that there, I mean, I, I think ultimately there is. I mean, ultimately there has to be, right? No, His argument. What? Melchizedek. Okay, good, thank you. All right, so Melchizedek. Um See, some have tried to relegate, have tried to relegate this idea to there's simply no mediator with Abraham. You know, he's got that promise, assured promise, and now we got the mediation of the law, right? Um, there's certainly an emphasis made on the mediation to the law here. Okay, so perhaps there's something of greater need in mediation represented there. Um, but ultimately, yeah, ultimately you have a mediator between God and Abraham, Melchizedek. There you go. And he's a he's a shadow of the of Christ to come, right? He's without mother and without yeah, there you go. Okay. So ultimately you see you have to see this in its eschatological fulfillment, right? So if you've got God and the one finally fulfilled. And there's no mediation. There's absolutely no mediation. Because this is an eschatological description of the eschatological situation, the finality, the final situation. There is ultimately no mediator here. So Christ is God. Well, let's move on. We've got us in the in the next section that I've put down for you. Uh, I want us to go back and reflect now on these texts, verses 1 to uh, 20, in, in a different kind of respect. Uh, one that really is in accord with what we've done before, 
but I want to press this aspect of what we've done before more fully. I've tried to argue with you that if anyone tries to keep the law, even its old theocratic sense, after the coming of Christ, they have nullified the cross of Christ, right? They have gone backward in redemptive history and have sought to nullify the cross of Christ. They have absolutized the law, and they're going to end up with complete curse and judgment, as Paul says. And, as a result, they have gutted the Old Testament economy of its gracious vector, right? Because did not the grace revealed in the Mosaic economy then look forward to the greater grace that would come in Jesus Christ? Right? And therefore, the saints rejoiced to see Christ's day. And when Christ came, true saints of God, the truly pious in Jerusalem, when they came to the feast of the day of Pentecost, they came. They came to Christ. Right? And they put aside attachment to the old order of things. So if you now go back to the law after Christ, you are making this an end in itself. You are gutting of its gracious element. Well, what is Paul's stance toward these Judaizers? Are they not going to be in absolute judgment? Is that right? Absolute condemnation? They do not repent? True. Eternal fire. This judgment, if excuse me, this curse upon, as it related to the true saints of God in the Old Covenant, was that eternal judgment? No. It was a type and shadow of curse, right? It was for them not eternal judgment because the justifying verdict of Jesus Christ surrounded them and kept them from the wrath of God. And it was to them but a shadow of that curse and the fact that that curse would yet be removed. So when you're thinking about the great justification that Christ has wrought and the sonship that Christ has given us, if I'm looking at this in relationship to the Old Testament, well, let's put it this way. Let's start with this. If I'm looking at this in relationship to the Judaizers, is there not an absolute contrast between the justifying work of Christ and the salvation in Christ and the damnation to come upon the Judaizers? There is an absolute contrast between the two, is there not? And in all of those who are still a part of this wicked, evil age, are they not in the same situation as the Judaizers? Unless they come to Christ, all Gentiles? Yes, they're under the wrath of God, absolutely speaking. So I'm calling that an absolute contrast. And that is implied, I believe, in this text. But we've also seen how there's a contrast between this greater salvation Christ brought and the curse of the law, even as it was upon the saints of the old. Is that an absolute contrast? It can't be, can it? They're not absolutely under the curse of God at all, right? At least for the true saints. So I call, I'm calling that a relative contrast, okay? Relative degrees, where there's blessedness with a type and shadow of curse, and now greater blessedness in the new covenant. See? Blessedness, but now greater blessedness. So that's a relative contrast. And I've tried to suggest to you, you see, that there is this relative contrast by looking at these passages in the Old Testament. Well, 
there's a group of people who believe that there is a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament made here. But there's not a contrast between the New Testament reality and the absolute curse and judgment of God upon the world. Okay. And this is a group of people from the new perspective on Paul. Now, they wouldn't even look at the contrast between the Old and New Testament as a relative contrast in the same way I have. They're just looking at it as a historical contrast on a linear line. Okay, here's the Old Testament, and there's that period of the Old Testament, and here we have the New Testament, and there is a contrast between, you see, an age when there was only Jews in the law, in, the, in salvation, and now we have Jews and Gentiles. Okay. And if they view the Jews at all being under curse, which some of them do, some of them don't, uh, that that curse is not eternal. Uh, is not we don't look we, they don't look at it quite this way. Okay. Now, the main issue though that I want to bring up is if there is no absolute contrast between the justifying work of Christ and eternal judgment, what becomes of our classic doctrine of justification from the Reformation? Does it still abide? I got a shake from your head. Was it Marine? Why not? What? I would say no because it would be no, it's it's not valid. That's right. It's not valid. Why not? That's what they're going to say. It's not valid because it wouldn't be necessary. If there's no contrast. That's right. There wouldn't be necessary. There wouldn't be Christ justifying us from the absolute wrath and curse of God, would there be? Okay. It would not be a contrast between this absolute curse and the justifying verdict. In fact, it wouldn't be a description of how one is saved from the wrath of God under Adam, ultimately, would it? Because don't we say, even for the Old Testament saints, prior to their coming to salvation, that they're ultimately under the wrath and curse of God? Apart from the saving work revealed here in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, are they not under the wrath and curse of God, absolutely speaking, like the Gentiles? Apart from the covenant of grace? That is, okay, there may be individuals who were regenerated from their mother's womb, just like John the Baptist, right? But they needed to be regenerated, didn't they? Okay? That means, ultimately, they were under the wrath and curse of God. Were they not? Dead in transgressions and sins. Deserving eternal punishment. Christ had to do something to save them. Just as he has to do something to save us. From eternal judgment. And so, that's why he has to bear eternal wrath on the cross and satisfy it. And he has to declare us to have perfect righteousness in contrast to, to curse or absolute cursedness, right? Now, these new perspective guys, they don't see it that way. They just see some of, for them, you know, to generalize them and put them all in a pocket to, together for a minute, they primarily see them, uh, they see the situation in the New Testament as one in which now Jews and Gentiles are brought in and justification simply means that becoming part of God's covenant people means that you are uh, 
that you can be Jew and Gentile alike and you're saved, whatever that means. But it doesn't mean being saved from the wrath of God and the absolute judgment of God by the justifying verdict of Jesus Christ. You're shaking your head going, well, what is it then? (laughs) That's the thing. They don't have any ultimate metaphysical, theological way that makes sense of this all. Okay? And you know what? They don't care. At least consciously, they, I mean, they, they express that they don't care. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Cheryl? Yeah. My, well, my thought is, is then Christ went to the cross for no reason. Yes. Isn't that the ultimate? I mean, he went to the cross for no reason. If That's right. And he went to the cross for no reason. In fact, one of them... One of them, N.T. Wright, he doesn't really believe this is dealing with any eternal curse at all. Okay, It's simply dealing with a curse that the Jews were under in a political sense. Okay, And the Gentiles weren't even under it. Okay, And then Christ came and he delivers them from this political curse so that you can have a political curse. Eschatology. You can have a political agenda. That's what salvation ultimately is, even though he'll talk about individual salvation in some weird sense. Ultimately, in terms of what Christ does for the curse, yeah, that relates to salvation somehow. But when you look at it in terms of this contrast to the previous period of the history of redemption, it's just there's a political curse on the Jews, and there is no more curse upon the Jews anymore. You were going to say... Isn't it true that Wright does talk about a sociological uh, amelioration or a union of Jew and Gentile in terms of breaking down multicultural barriers? And so justification is a way of Mm -hmm. bringing together ethnic groups without these divisions. Uh, uh, So, you know, it's a definition of justification or redemption in terms of sociological unification or amelioration. Right. So, so you might even qualify, there is a kind of theological way, but it's not what we call theological. It's, it's a sociological kind of thing. It looks like it was born in the late, late 80s and 90s when everybody was getting on the multicultural bandwagon. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether that helps people grasp a little more concretely what he means by justification and salvation, but Right. Yes. Could you say again what the new perspectives people, what they uh, subscribe to as far as the wrath of God or his punishment for sin? Yeah. um, It it really depends upon the person, okay? All right. But uh, basically, what it is, is you are. It's just, to my mind, it's almost like Greek Orthodoxy in some ways, okay? Uh, in this, even distinction from uh, the West. The West has this view of salvation where there is uh, potential merit. I didn't ask you about salvation. Oh, okay, okay. Good. Wrath, okay, well, we'll keep it simple. Okay, wrath of God, it's, it's, simply, it's simply Israel going into exile, and that's it. Gentiles don't suffer the wrath of God. Not for right. But then you got another guy who's in the new perspective. 
His name is Dunn, and he says that Wright's wrong about this, that it's not the Jews under the, under the wrath, it's the Gentiles, because the Gentiles have become like the covenant breakers outside of the people of God. So there's this curse on the covenant breakers. But they, those two would agree that not everyone's under the wrath of God. Yeah, that's interesting. They both agree that not everyone's under the wrath of God. So my second question is, yeah. uh, uh, do they subscribe to um, Jesus Christ taking the curse upon himself as being the solution to avoid the wrath of God? Yes, and, and what right is, right says that Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God, on the, bears the curse for the Jews on the cross in order that the age of grace might come. And right says that he bears the wrath of God for Gentiles that the age of grace might come. But, yeah, go ahead. Would it be reasonable, I mean, I'm just trying to understand, is, it, is the key point is that not everyone is under the wrath of God? Is that kind of the... That, that becomes key, right? of the new perspectives. That becomes key, because you see, if not everybody's under the wrath of God, then sinners aren't in Adam ultimately under judgment and under wrath and under con- absolute condemnation in contrast to the justifying birth of Christ. Now, I know you might have some more questions, but let me let me go through this a little bit more methodically uh, and tell you what I some other reasons that are essential to what I think is this absolute contrast, even from our text, and that is the very fact that Jews and Gentiles are both under the wrath of God and the curse of God. You see, if you look at uh, 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, this us and we business, I would argue, is Jews and Gentiles alike. Okay? It has to be the same group for whom Christ bore the curse of the law. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Okay? And clearly, the curse is born so that the Gentiles might come to Christ. So clearly, he bears the curse for the Gentiles. All right? But he also bears the curse for the Jews, too. In fact, it's clear we've already seen that cursed are all those who are under the law. And clearly, that at least refers to the Jews. So we got Jews and Gentiles under the curse of the law. All right? So, he has, in my opinion, a general term, you see. He's referring to us, all being under the wrath of God, uh, ultimately, and, uh, and even speaking of the Jews, relatively speaking, under the wrath, all in, one, all in one lump sum. In other words, apart from the coming of Christ, there's wrath, in some respect. But now, clearly... Jew and Gentile, ultimately under the wrath of God, because who, Christ has to bear eternal wrath, right? Does it make sense that he's bearing eternal wrath for, for Gentiles and not Jews? In other words, could he be saying here that, oh, I'm only speaking of Jews being under the wrath of God, relatively speaking, and yet Gentiles are the only ones under the wrath of God, absolutely speaking? No. Because he bears the same kind of wrath he bears for the Gentiles, Right? He must bear for the Jews. Eternal wrath and condemnation for both, right? 
So it's critical to see that both Jews and Gentiles are under this condemnation, I think. And uh, what you have is that um, that's why you have that language that we already looked at, Galatians 5.4, where the Judaizers are absolutely under curse, you see, if they fall from grace. They're not simply going into exile, are they? They're absolutely under the curse of God. All right. So we have a contrast in this book between the absolute justification that's in Christ and the curse of the law. Now what you have, you see, is in the new perspective, like I was saying, there's no contrast between this absolute curse and this absolute salvation, this justifying verdict. Instead, as I pointed out, this is purely for, for different authors do it in different ways. They all have most of them have the sociological approach that Jim talked about. Um, but Wright, N.T. Wright, has the Jews just under curse here, you see, under curse so that they go into exile. Now it might be seem to have some formal similarities to what I told you about Gentiles, the Jews going under curse, but I'm saying this is an eschatological intrusion. In the Old Testament, that is, it's a foretaste of God's judgment, not in full force, but it therefore represents God's eternal wrath on all those outside of Christ. They don't see it that way. He doesn't see it that way. No, it's just some sort of general curse that the Jews have for not getting in their land. And then Christ comes and he, and he takes away that curse, so he, he brings, he gets rid of the exile, you see. And uh, as a result of the Jews' getting out of the exile, and now being able to come to faith in Jesus, now the blessing can come to the Gentiles, okay, because the Jews are now kind of freed to share the message. But it's not like Christ bore the wrath of God for the Gentiles. No, he just bore the curse for the Jews. Now they're freed so they can share this message. What kind of message do they have left? All right? And... So he's got one way. He doesn't have everybody under the wrath of God, so there's no absolute wrath of God here. And the same thing with, with uh, one of his compatriots, uh, uh, Jimmy Dunn. All right? Basically, that guy, all it is is these Gentiles, you see, you know, are outside the covenant community. They're outside the group of the people of God. And now Christ dies for them and takes away that curse so that they get to come in and be part of the people of God. And so there's no sense that everybody is deserving of God's wrath because he doesn't have Jews under the wrath of God here. Okay? So you, you end up with these provisional kind of temporal curses that Christ takes away. Now, of course, this is convenient because then he doesn't have to be God either, right? I mean, these guys, I mean, I mean, N.T. Wright might believe in the deity of Christ in some respect, but a lot of these guys don't. And you don't need him to be God. He doesn't bear eternal wrath on the cross for his people. Or at least he doesn't need to. Question. Yeah? You just said that Dunn says the Gentiles are outside the covenant community. Correct. That's why they need something. Right. Is he uh, is outside of the covenant community? Does that mean sin? Does that mean that? Sinful. Sure. Okay. Thank Sinners you. of the Gentiles. Thank you. 
But does that mean under the complete sinful depravity and total depravity and condemnation of the law that Augustine, Calvin, and Luther believed? No. They must be close to that because they need Christ's death to... Yeah, I mean, I, I can't pin it down perfectly, and I'd have to go through Dunn's work on Paul. He's got a little book on Paul, and I've only gone through sections of that, so I haven't figured out all of his views yet. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I think I got maybe lost there at some point, but so maybe I could restate it. Uh, in this chapter 3 here, in very various places, where mm-hmm. Paul's talking about, like, verse 10, as many as all the works of the law... Uh, and then later, uh, towards the end of the chapter, he he's, uh, uses the first person uh, plural. Uh, Therefore, the law became our tutor uh, to lead us to Christ, and we may be justified by faith. Um, which an issue here is, is uh, who is under the law? That's a part of the issue. Is we inclusive of Gentiles, exclusive of Romans, exclusive of Jews? That's part of the issue. What they do is they press that issue. Okay, so you know there might be some people who think the we here is simply Jews and and they're confused. But in my opinion, but but these guys really press that issue, and 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 I mean at least N.T. Wright does so that it is exclusively Jews and not Gentiles, and so Christ bears the wrath for 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 the Jews. You know, in other places, he'll talk about Christ, you know, dying for our salvation, okay? Uh, and, but what does that mean? And he has no active imputation of Christ's righteousness after that for us in justification. There definitely isn't, he definitely rejects that, okay? Um, and I think that that is another aspect of this text which is implied here, right? Because we saw that Christ became the curse that he becomes the blessing, right? And therefore, he imputes that blessed life to his people. They are declared as if they are completely blessed. So that God may truly internally give them his blessing, right? That results uh, from that in the gift of the Spirit. But there is an exchange here. Uh, there's an exchange, I think. They're, he's bearing their curse. And uh, this context of the blessing of Abraham has to do with justification in this text, as well as the gift of the Spirit. Okay. Well, there's this other issue here that's related to this, and that is... When you contrast faith and not the works of the law, okay, how is Paul making this contrast? Well, I've tried to show you that in one respect, I believe, as you compare the fullness of the end of the ages with the previous history of the era of history of redemption, you're talking about the greater faith in relative contrast to faith working itself out through the law, right? In other words, sure, Israel has faith, but there's greater faith in the New Covenant age, you see. And, but when that contrast is taken to be in contrast to those under the wrath of God, 
Is there any faith at all in them? Any genuine faith at all? (coughs) Any genuine faith? No. There is no genuine faith. And so they are without faith. And what does works of the law mean for them there? It means absolutely under the curse of God, as if they're absolutely trying to earn all aspects of salvation by works of the law. Right? Did David's obedience to the works of the law here mean that? Did it mean that he was trying ultimately to earn his salvation by works of the law? No. God may have given him a greater blessing as opposed to curse in that land, but ultimately he was looking to Christ through faith. These these Judaizers are not. They have absolutized this aspect of the law, and they've made it an end in itself, and therefore they have made obedience to the works of the law an end in themselves, and they have gone for perfect, absolute works righteousness. You see? And that Paul is opposing, you see? Opposing with faith. Faith alone, not the works of the law. Now, you see, it's that absolute contrast that lets us maintain the Reformation's doctrine that the only instrumental means of justification is faith alone. Not by means of works at all, per se. You see? Not by means of any works. The New Perspective guys say, well, it means by faith in Christ means not by works of the law uh, only in reference to works as far as special Jew- Jewish boundary markers like circumcision and, and, and so forth. They don't contrast it to works per se. So, in, a, in effect, they mostly have you be justified by your faithfulness in the new era as opposed to uh, something else. And we don't have time to get into it, but there's another guy, Richard Hayes, who thinks that all this is talking about the faithfulness of Christ. And that's all. So Christ's faithfulness as opposed to the works of the law. I don't think that works ultimately with the contrast when you really push it completely. And you, again, lose our instrumental means of faith as contrasted to the works of the law. And Paul actually speaks here of the contrast in verses 2 and two and 4, chapter 3, about the hearing of faith as opposed to the law. So your response in faith, by means of faith, faith being the only instrumental means of our justification. Now, see, what I'm trying to suggest to you is that if we see this fuller aspect in the history of redemption, of the justifying verdict of Christ and the newness of sonship in Christ, we will see greater reason to undergird our doctrine of justification from the Reformation. And that in conflict to the new perspective guys. Okay. Because... When I'm talking to you about this relative contrast, I'm talking to you about a curse, even though it is a shadow of curse, we're no longer, we're at least talking in the context of curse. And a curse which is an intrusion of the final curse of God. It's not just a temporal curse, 
ultimately those who do not believe this covenant of grace in Moses and are cut off, are they simply cut off temporarily? No, they're cut off in eternal judgment, right? It's an eternal curse to them, right? So Korah and his family, for Korah, this is a total, this is an eternal curse. He is cut off from the presence of God eternally, bearing the wrath of God. It is the saints that God has justified who are shielded from the wrath of God. So, so this, in effect, points us toward the curse that is upon the whole world. And therefore, if you have a curse being removed in a greater declaration of vindication in the age of grace, then it must mean an absolute reversal of curse in absolute vindication in the day of grace. What does this mean for the Gentiles? It means them who are completely under curse, having that curse completely removed in all respects. It means an imputation of absolute perfect righteousness in contrast to their cursedness and disobedience. And at the same time, you can see why justification has to do with the coming into the Gentiles. Because in relationship to the inheritance of God, the Gentiles are now made full partakers because that inheritance is above in heaven. You don't have to go back to the land of Palestine. It's glorious in the heavenly places. So you Gentiles can be brought into that from your absolute cursedness and bondage to the liberty that's in Christ Jesus anywhere in the world. You don't have to be circumcised and be made participants in that land of Palestine to be heirs of that land and inheritors of that possession. You are possessors of the inheritance above Justified freely by grace. I mean, the, the new perspective thinks it's heyday is because they recognize that the passages on justification talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so they look at it purely horizontally, trying to figure out some way that the Gentiles are not included, whether it's Wright's way or Dunn's way, and they get them in, but they get them in in some sort of temporal sociological way, not in a theological way. Not in an eschatological way. You see, when you're brought to the kingdom, you can see why it's the age of grace in Christ Jesus that invites the Gentiles in and means the reformers must have been right. It was justification by the instrumental means of faith alone, not works. And that faith laying hold of the Christ who is the embodiment of all the promises of God so that you are blessed possessors of him who is the glory of the age to come, even now. That's your glory. And I would only point out one thing. There are some... You see, who say, no, 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 this, this can't be at all talking about a situation where Israel was under curse. Okay? Because we're contrasting people of faith who couldn't be under curse. You see, it's by faith, not, not this. But 
I would say Paul is using a universal term. He is using a universal term, those under the curse, that applies in one respect to the saints under the curse here, to the Jews in absolute cursedness, to the Gentiles in absolute cursedness. Okay, He's using a universal term. And we have seen that it does make sense when we're talking about the saints of the Old Testament because they are said, it is said, until the coming of faith, implying that there's some degree of faith in the New Age, not in the Old. Okay. So you see, Paul can use these universal terms to describe Jew and Gentile alike, even though he may have distinctions on how those relate to each group and see that now, in the coming of the age of the kingdom, Christ is the salvation of all. All in him. He is the one seed of Abraham who bears eternal curse for all Jew and Gentile in him, and in the midst of doing that, even takes away that provisional shadow curse that separated the people of God and Israel from the fullness of their inheritance in Christ Jesus. And he brings us all into that eschatological, blessed justification in Christ Jesus. As if we can look now, as if we can look back at his death and resurrection and say, that was my justification. And now I have entered the heavenly places in Christ Jesus beyond the wrath of God And that is my comfort and my joy and my glory. And from him, the Lord Jesus, who is the center of that, coming to you, he gives you his promises of grace and beckons you, beckons you to come into his presence as the people of God, fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ and to rejoice in his son.